Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 2. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn or tap your way to James, chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those words for you on the screen, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation. Because, man, the Bible's just... It's everything that we believe as Christians. It's the most clear statement of God's Word. It's what we base Hope Church on. And that message within the Bible is extremely unique. Now, you don't hear that a lot. I think most people will say, most popular writers and thinkers will say, that all religion are the same in that. And then they'll start throwing out the commonalities as though those things in common make all the differences irrelevant. But if you really understand what the Bible says about God and the way we relate to God, you see that it's actually different from, at the most crucial point, different from every other religion on the world. Here's what I mean by that. In every religion in the world, there are some sort of reward, some sort of a way that you can get uh, nirvana, that you can get... um, palaces and virgins, that you can get some sort of paradise, that you can be gifted or granted some sort of absolute peace, joy, something. Religions of the world have something that you get for doing the law, the principle, following the pillars, making your life perfectly submitted to the way. Whatever the religion is, there's always a means and an end, a thing that you do, and based on how well you do it, you get some version of, some portion of, or all of a reward. Talk about carrot and stick. That's donkey language. For a donkey, use a carrot to get it to go forward or a stick to make it move. Carrots don't excite me, so let's say cake. A cake and a stick. There's something that you want and you're going towards, and they've got something to make you afraid with, And they're using both of those things to move you. Christianity is different. And here's why it's different. In Christianity, we say that, yes, God has given his law. Yes, there is a heaven. But the way that any individual person gets to that heaven is not by following the law. But the way you get from here to there has already been done. It's already been accomplished. And it's been handed to you. So we say that you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. Meaning grace, God gives you that salvation. He gives you heaven. He gives you that glory. He makes you his son. He just gives it. And that you receive that gift just through faith, just by trusting. You don't do anything that merits God's favor. No, 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 no. He loves you. He has provided through this rescue forgiveness. And all we do is receive that forgiveness by faith. I think that's written on just about every page of Scripture. It's my job as a pastor when I'm preaching from the text of Scripture to go from wherever that text is to the cross. I'm always showing you. And when you read through the New Testament, a lot of it's written by Paul. And Paul is always saying things like, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from works of the law. Now, that's exactly what I just said. And then you read James. Now, a lot of people, um, maybe they, they try in their attempt to, to act Christian, will we'll go through Scripture, they'll start reading it. And if you're reading it in a heads-up way, you'll very quickly come to something like James. Or you see something that on the surface seems to just contradict what you just read. You know that you're saved by grace. I mean, you just read Galatians. Then you're reading James and you see that he says in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're like most people that I talk to, when you get to something like this, you go, oh, I found it. Your religion is so petty and small that even I have found the thing that breaks the back of the whole of your faith 2,000 years, and they have stumbled, they have crashed on the rock of my intellect. No, well, no. God love you, you're very intelligent, but no. When you read this, I want to help you see that while it does seem to say that you are saved by works, the argument that James is making is in no way saying that you are saved by works. That's a knot that's in Scripture, and I want you to understand it because you are motivated to not understand it. Why? Either you're motivated to use it as a way to say Christianity's bunk, I don't need to think about, I don't need to be familiar with, I don't need to follow that Jesus. Or you are a Christian. And you can say to yourself, well, this James guy, I mean, he's a little out to lunch. I definitely don't need to be more obedient to God in my life. And why would you want to do that? Well, because you want to disobey. <laughs> Let's not be too spiritual about it. We're motivated to not understand how this goes together. We're motivated to have some grain of doubt, some grain of uncertainty about our obedience so that we can continue in, let's not even say disobedience, let's say moderate obedience. Because for most Christians, you're not trying to find a way to justify your adultery. For most Christians, you're trying to find a way to justify your laziness. To justify running the engine at like 30% instead of going all out. So we're going to unknot this knot. And then, once it is firmly unknotted, I want us to see two amazing things that are being said by this passage. This passage does not exist just as an exercise for us to try and see the uh, harmony of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, Paul and James. This text is saying something really powerful, really wonderful, and something to us, to you. So, let's unknot it, and then let's move forward. First, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That you see is cluing you into everything else he's been saying in these couple of paragraphs. He is making an argument, and this argument is working to disprove something that has started to take place in the church. It happened back in James's day, James right at the same time as Jesus, and it's happening today. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith saves, but 
If someone has faith or says they have faith, but that faith does not express itself in any evidence, if there's no way in which that faith works, that it changes your life, can that faith save you? So, do you understand now what he's actually saying? He's beginning by saying there is a a heretical idea, there is an anti-God idea in the church, and I'm going to break it. It's the idea that because I'm saved by grace, this grace does not need to change my life in any way. I can just sort of throw this extra prayer on whatever it is I want to do, and I'm clean, and I can continue to do whatever I want to do. No. Works are a necessary outflow of your faith. How do we know that? Well, he makes an argument. He says in verses 15 to 17, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, necessary for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. What's he saying? Imagine the picture. You and I, we've gotten to know each other real well. We've been coming, you've been coming to Hope Church over the course of several months. And let's just say I knock on your door one day. Man, a lot of really hard stuff's happened. It's 20 degrees outside, and here I am, and I don't have good clothes for it, and haven't eaten in a week. And you reply, hey, I get it, man. Go. Be warm, be filled. Shroop, and you just shut the door right in my face. Does that mean that you really want me to be warm and filled? Well, of course not. You absolutely evidence what it is that you want to take place by the way that you act. Now, you may not go out and buy an extra large jacket for me, but you would try to help me find a way if you cared about me. You say to your brother or your sister, go, be warm, be filled, but you don't help them. You don't actually do something, then what are you? Certainly a hypocrite, definitely some kind of liar. Works are necessary as evidence. It says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. To which James replies, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. I will give you evidence that God has changed me because what I believe will impact my life. If it doesn't, you have something that is not saving faith. Instead, well, he he says that does exist. That's a category. There are beings who believe in God and they actually know a lot about him. They've actually seen him seen him blazing in his glory, and they've seen him for a really long time. And yet, that faith doesn't translate into obedience for them. Who are they? Some will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And he says in verse 19, you believe that God is one? Great job. The other people who believe the same, even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah, we do believe that this is talking truth, that there was this creation that takes place. And in this creation, God creates all kinds of different things, lower than us, animals and plants, but other things as well, these spiritual beings, angels and demons. 
He creates angels, and those angels, there's a, a contingent that fall. They reject God, and though they know God, they don't obey God. They have this faith that is being described. No, we don't want to have demonic faith. We do want to have saving faith. And so he gives us examples, examples of these devils, oh my gosh, but also examples of what we should have, of examples where faith does express itself in this beautiful, sustaining fruit. The two examples he gives, and we'll talk about them in more detail in a minute, are Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is a big deal in the Old Testament. He's still a big deal today, but he was the guy that God used to say, okay, from you, I will build a nation, and from this nation, I'm going to bless the whole of the world. That's the nation of Israel. The Jews come from a family. It all begins with this guy, Abraham. And Abraham had the son, the one son of the promise. And God said, this one son, on whom all of these blessings and all of these covenants and all of these promises rest, Abraham I want you to sacrifice him. We'll tell that story in a little more detail in a moment. Rahab. There's a moment as you fast forward way far in the people of Israel's story. The people of Israel become a great nation. They're in Egypt. God, through Moses, delivers them out of Egypt, and they come to a promised land. And then their taking of the promised land, there's this big city, Jericho, and they send some spies into Jericho to see how we're going to take this city. And there's a lady in that town called Rahab. And Rahab believed that God of the Israelites, that the Yahweh, the Jewish God, was the God. She believed that he had delivered them from a much mightier nation, from Egypt. And she knew that he was not only the real God, but that he could and would destroy Jericho. She believed that. And she evidenced that belief by hiding the spies from the authorities in Jericho and making a way for them to continue in their work. She switched sides. But if she had given up those spies, what kind of faith would that be? We would say, no, she doesn't really believe that God is God. He outlaws the idea that faith would not have works. And he just does it by showing you common sense. So then you say, okay, but doesn't James believe that you're saved by your works? Well, no. As you read through the rest of this book of James, you see that not only does he show you how faith is going to produce these works, he also shows you that you can't, by work, honor God, really. He says in James chapter 2, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Because the same God, the same authority, the same individual person who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you are still a transgressor of the law. So James' understanding of works and obedience before God is so absolute that the law is like a giant plane of glass, a giant sheet of glass. And if you shoot just one little spot, you break the whole plane. The law is a clear, beautiful glass of water. And if you just put one drop of sewage in it, the whole glass is unclean. You can't just drink the non-sewage side. It's all sewage now, bro. 
Toss it out. He's saying the law is exactly like this. If you break even one piece of it, you've broken all of it. Then how could James say that you could somehow honor God, that you could somehow justify yourself before God through your actions? Of course not. The only way he could possibly say that is if he thought that it was possible that you or I could somehow never break that glass. Just be totally sinless. But he doesn't teach that either. In chapter 3, he says, We all stumble in many ways. When we talk about the way he tries to help us with our speech, you'll see. James has no category for a sinless person. In fact, all have broken the law. All have fallen. All must be saved by faith. James's point is you must be saved by faith that works. So, how does he mean that positively? We're not just saying what he's not saying. Let's talk about what he is saying. If James is not disagreeing with the rest of the New Testament, but in perfect agreement with the rest of the New Testament, that we are saved by grace through faith, then what the heck is he talking about when he says we have to be saved by faith that works? Well, works display what it is you believe. We've talked about this and we're going to keep talking about it. If you actually believe something, that changes the way you live. Now, here's a couple of substances. They look very similar, but they are not the same. Windex and Gatorade. Now, I don't know if you've had the pleasure of having some cool blue Gatorade thirst quencher, but Gatorade is good for you. With an asterisk. I mean, it's got a lot of calories and sugar and stuff. But it's okay for you to drink. And they sell it as something that high-performance athletes can put in their bodies and continue to perform at a high level. If you drink it, it's sweet. If you drink it, you feel like you're Michael Jordan. And you throw it on your face a little bit and get sticky. This is supposed to be good for you. If you believe that, you don't have a problem drinking it. This is Windex. Also a fine product. I don't know if you've ever used it, but you spray a little Windex on a window and then you can, and the streaks are gone. So impressive. You don't think Windex is great. Let your kids get near one of your glasses and then try to just do it with water. It's so streaky. It's really surprising. Windex, fantastic product, but not good for drinking. If you drink Windex, and I Googled it, the ammonia that's in there creates a foaming in your mouth. You could actually suffocate on the foam from just drinking it. If you do get it down and don't suffocate, then what's inside this cleaning agent will actually strip your digestive system. If it doesn't kill you, it'll mess you up. So you don't drink Windex. You should never drink Windex. Nobody ever should ever Ooh. Drink Windex. No, it's Gatorade. Ah, acting. I gotcha. No, no, probably not. But I hope you can think for a second about just how crazy it would be if I say that I really believe that Windex, whew, maybe there's a little bit of Windex left. <laughs> if I really believe that Windex would foam my mouth and strip out my guts, 
is there any way that I would drink it? Maybe you give it to an enemy, but is there any way you would drink it? If you did drink it, then you have to come to the conclusion that it must not actually be Windex. Because if this guy's not trying to hurt himself in a bad way, and he really does believe that it's Windex and that it will hurt him, there's just no way he would drink it. Now, I hope that that is as clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Do you understand then James's question to you and me? If you say that you believe that your sin before God put Christ on the cross, if you say that you believe that God is a good God and creator and that what he says is good is actually good and what he says is bad is actually really bad, if you say you believe that, is it really possible that you would do what you say is bad and not do what you say is good. If you say you believe that God sent His Son to rescue you, that though you didn't know Him, you have now come into contact with a personal living God because you have learned about Jesus, this Jesus who came to rescue you and take your sins upon Himself. He was perfect. He's the only one who never did sin and break that glass. But He took your sin and put it on Himself and He gave His righteousness on your head. And that He did it by going to a cross. The cross being a physical representation of a spiritual reality. By that I mean that though He was scourged, though He was stripped and humiliated, though a crown of thorns was pressed into His skull and he was hung, suspended from a cross until he suffocated. That wasn't the worst part. The physical suffering of Christ is not really even what he did for you. If you say you believe that what he did for you was to take your sin upon himself and becoming sin for you, fully drinking the wrath of God for that sin. Would your life really look as sinful as many Christians' lives do? Do you see the legitimacy of that question? Now, we're saved by grace. I am not calling you perfect or even calling you to be perfect. But of course I'm calling you to strive for it. If that faith is in your heart, if it has changed you, no, I don't expect you to be perfect, but I do expect some kind of change. If you say you really believe it, shouldn't it affect your actions? Do you understand what James is saying? He's saying, if you have believed, if there was a moment when you became his, shouldn't it change the way that you live? Not all at one time, not in an easy way, but in an evident way. Of course. So you've got to ask yourself, does it? Abraham, when he goes to give his only son as an act of obedience to God, did so out of faith. He believed God. And here's what I mean by that. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this hall of fame of faith where it talks about all these people showing their faith throughout Scripture. 
And in that chapter, there's a big section on Abraham, and there's a specific section on Abraham offering up Isaac. It says in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All the covenants, all the promise, all of what God has said to Abraham rests on Isaac. And yet he goes to sacrifice him because he is considering that God was able to raise even from the uh, was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the story is that God calls on Abraham to take this son, the son of his old age, the son of the promise, and to go and to sacrifice that son. And Abraham does it. But Abraham does not do it out of blind obedience. He does not do it because he was really upset with Isaac that day. He does not do it out of some sort of bloodlust, as though the, the religion of Yahweh called for human sacrifice. He does it because he actually does trust God to be faithful. He's a hundred at this point and has watched God's faithfulness for ten decades. He does it because he does believe that God can bring life out of death. How does he believe that? Well, when Sarah was 90, she got pregnant. I don't need to explain all of the plumbing, but if you're 90, that thing is dead. And yet, here comes life. He's able to bring life out of death. Abraham believes that, and because he believes, he obeys. Same with Rahab, verse 31 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute didn't perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, there's all kinds of stuff about Abraham that we can know and think about and kind of like, oof, wow, good job, God, for giving a guy like Abraham. But it's a little easier with Rahab because this chick's name is Rahab the prostitute. And yet she is held forward to us, not as an example of unbelievable holiness and faithfulness. She's brought to us as a clear example of what salvation looks like. God is not looking for perfect people to put his name on. He's not looking for great applicants to hire. He's looking for people, as dirty and broken as they may be, who yet believe. And then in that belief, then in that trust, he takes them and he does amazing things with them. Then they start to change. Then their whole world turns upside down, such that Rahab is actually named in the genealogy of Christ as one of his great, 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 great grandmothers. Why? Because God delights to take your faith and do through it absolutely magnificent things. That's what James is saying. That by your faith, there will be works. That's the beauty of the gospel. Not that you're great, but that he is. And that if you will trust him by faith, even today, even this moment, you will be forgiven, changed, his forever. And if you do, works not only will evidence your faith, they will build your faith. This one we can talk about very quickly. But the idea is that this experience of living out your faith will reinforce your faith. He talked about how you might just say, go, be filled, go and be dressed to your homeless brother or sister and you don't actually do anything, then they, well, you don't actually love this person. However, if you do actually do something, you take them on a shopping spree, you take them to 
Burlington Coat Factory and buy them the fluffiest, hairiest thing in the whole market. You take them to a, a chuck wagon and just shove as much food as their belly will take and then take them to the grocery. What happens? Instead, you get to see, you get to delight in the sacrifice and the pleasure, and that will reinforce for you what Christ has done in His overwhelming grace towards you. Not because you've earned it, not because you've deserved it. This guy doesn't. It's just out of love. And that work, that lived parable will reinforce your beliefs. But again, it's so common sense. Mark Twain says, (laughs) A man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. I can tell you what might happen. I'm not a cat guy. But I can tell you what might happen if you grab one by the tail and just start trying to carry it around. But if you actually do it, you learn something all the way down. (laughs) Your obedience will reinforce your faith. That's why it is so important for practice to make perfect. Your faith isn't just an intellectual structure that you somehow build and then work to make sure that it's consistent and then you're done. Your faith is much more like a relationship. Something that is constantly being reinforced by the kisses, constantly being reinforced by the difficulty and pain and forgiveness and and repenting one to another. It's much more like learning to play an instrument or play a sport. It's done. You are a pianist. And yet, as you practice, you become better. You become more fully what you already are. That's the glory of the gospel, and that's what he is admonishing us to do. So what do you do with it today? Well, you've got to ask yourself who you are. Is that faith yours? Is that really who you are? If so, does your life show it? If not, hey, great. Let's work on that together. These Advent candles are not for perfect people. The darkness and the rescue and the forgiveness implies that we're not perfect people. He's here to put you where you are, to put you back together. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that people receive you even this morning by faith. I pray that your believers commit themselves once again to a slow, steady, consistent obedience that displays the faith that they have. In that obedience, Father, I pray that you would teach them again and again by just this lived analogy, who you are, what it is they believe, why it's so good and why it's so necessary. Lord, I pray that in our steadfastness, you'd make us perfect and complete. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.